shirt. <laughs> you don't have to worry about that tonight, though. Don't worry about that. Most of us, if we were to stop a minute and think, can remember someone who's been really influential in our lives. Someone because of their relationship with us uh, and their ministry to us, that they changed our lives in some way. It might be a coach, a teacher, it may be a pastor or a friend. Someone who walked into the space of your life at the time that you needed what they had. And God sent them to you to minister to you in such a way that it transformed you. It changed you in a way that you'll never forget. For me, I can remember one of the people who had that kind of influence on me was my first great teacher, Mrs. Ware. Now, if Mrs. Ware were alive today, we would say that she's woke. For those of you who know what that means. Very socially engaged, socially aware about social change. And uh, so a young black woman who grew up on the same side of town that I did on the east side of Oklahoma City, same neighborhood, went off to university, and she probably could have gone anywhere she wanted to go, but she decided to come back to the neighborhood, back to the school where, that, that we were in so she could have an impact on young lives, like me. And I remember she, she challenged us, even at that young age, to try to think outside of our cultural bubble that we were in, and to think about what we could achieve and what we could aspire to, things that we could accomplish in life, achievement. One of the things I remember most is how particular she was about language, about speech. You couldn't say anything any kind of way around Ms. Ware because she, would, she had no problem with correcting you and stopping you mid-sentence and say, why don't you say that again? Say it clearly. Speak properly, speak correctly. She used to refer to us as people. She said, people, we must learn to speak clearly and distinctly. Those very words, just like that. Now, I don't know if you've been around first graders, but first graders are not the most articulate people you'd ever probably run across. <laughs> And I don't think that's the point she was making. She was trying to get us to think about our cultural situation in her woke way, and our cultural situation, that the challenges we would have as young people coming up in the world we were coming up in. She was trying to teach us that good language is consistent with achievement, and that bad language isn't consistent with achievement. And that stuck with me. Transformational. We've been studying these Thursday nights about Encounters with Jesus. Uh, accounts from the scripture when, from the Bible where we see where Jesus walked into the space of people's lives and their lives were changed forever because of what he said, what he did, who he was. And we come to one of those passages tonight in Luke 19, if you'll turn with me. Luke 19. <clears throat> And I'll read the first, first 10 verses. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible, so it's probably pretty close to what you have. Verse 1, he said, He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. 
Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to, in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He is gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Verse 9, And Jesus said to him, Today's salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. I want to talk about the theme, kind of borrowing from verse 9. I want to focus on what happens when salvation comes. What happens when salvation comes? Let's pray. God, we thank you tonight for salvation. We thank you for Jesus, that he came and he took on flesh, and he suffered, and he died, that he rose again, so that all who believe in him might have eternal life, might have salvation. We thank you for those who have, have salvation, that salvation has come to us. We ask that you that we listen intently to your word and, and listen to what you speak to us in our heart. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. So Zacchaeus, uh, in verse 19, first we see Jesus was coming through Jericho, and there was a great crowd with him great throngs of people, and was probably really, really hyped up because if you read the verses before chapter 19, he had healed a blind person. So this is intensive, this crowd, this throng of people following Jesus through Jericho. And we meet this man named Zacchaeus, who said he was, the scripture says he's a tax collector. He's a chief tax collector, and he was rich. A little bit about tax collectors. Tax collectors become tax collectors because they have a services contract with the government of Rome that they bid for and they were awarded a contract. And their job is to collect taxes, tariffs from goods that move in and out, from cash that flows. So they give what's owed to Rome, but they have the leeway to keep whatever they can keep for themselves. And they were good at that part of their job. You know, they knew how to squeeze people. They knew how to uh, uh, just twist people's arms to get all that they could from them. And they, they, they had a very, very, very bad reputation. But nobody could do anything because it's kind of like the IRS, right? They have the full weight and force of the U.S. government behind them. He had the full weight and force and power of Rome behind him. So he pretty much had free reign to do what he, he wanted to do. And he was rich. The other thing it says that he was a Jew, which means the Jews really hated him because they thought he was a sellout. He was doing the, bid, the bidding of Rome. And not only that, he was doing it in a very corrupt way. They looked at him as a lowlife, as a scoundrel, as a thief. In fact, in verse 7, it said they looked upon him as a sinner, which means that under the Jewish ceremonial law, he was ceremonially unclean. So he was outside of the community of faith. He was an outcast from the community of faith of the Jews. 
So he was a hated person. But this day, this rich, powerful person made it his prime business that day to see Jesus. He dropped everything he was doing. The powerful guy who's used to ordering people around, right? So he pulled up his robe and he ran as fast as he could to a sycamore tree and climbed a tree. Now that doesn't sound like normal behavior for a person, right, of his stature. His friends were probably saying, what's going on with Zacchaeus? What's happening with Zacchaeus? Well, what happens to Zacchaeus this day is that he had made it his prime directive in life to, to get with Jesus. So that's the first thing we see when salvation comes, is there's a new pursuit. Zacchaeus pursued Jesus. A new pursuit. A.W. Tozer called this, calls this the pursuit of God. In his book entitled The Pursuit of God, he describes the pursuit of God as a hunger and a thirst for, a, for, for cultivating a personal relationship with the God who created us. A hunger and a thirst for a relationship with God. A heart that's set on knowing God in a way that's deeper and deeper as I spend time in his word, as I spend time in prayer, as I follow him in my life. My reality of God gets deeper and deeper and bigger and bigger, and my reality of myself and relationship to God gets deeper and deeper and bigger and bigger. That's the pursuit of God. And A.W. Tozer says this pursuit of God should become our primary business in life, the number one thing in our life. Now, the problem is there are so many other things that distract us in our pursuits. And I, I, I feel you on this because I know that pressures can become our pursuits, the things that pressure us. The pressure to perform on a job or in a vocation, the pressure to perform as a parent, the pressure if you're a man or a woman who's the head of a house, Hold to, to provide for your children, that pressure to provide for, for their needs and to make and the ends of meet and, and for their future. And if you're a single person, the pressure of that biological clock that keeps spinning and moving, and then you're wondering, God, when is my time? When is my person coming? And, and if we're not careful, we can put our, our energy and our, and our emotions and our time and our affections and our hearts into those things that cause pressure in our life. Now, those pressures are necessary, sometimes details of life, but I call them the little rocks. The big rock is the pursuit of God, the primary thing in our lives, the thing that defines us. The little rocks are these details, sometimes necessary details. But if we get the big rock right, God gives us grace with the little rocks. What are you pursuing today? What are we pursuing today? Zacchaeus pursued Jesus, and Jesus rewarded him. He said, come on down. I'm going to spend time with you today, face-to-face, personality-to-personality, as God is a personality, and we cultivate that relationship with him on a person-to-person basis. He says, come on down, and we're going to spend time together. You're going to be with me. And of course, the crowd grumbled because this is scoundrel. What do you mean, Jesus, you're going to, you're going to have dinner with this scoundrel, this person who's a low life? What are we pursuing? Is it Jesus? Is it God himself? Probably some of you are wondering, why all these P's? And you know, all these words that begin with P, I don't have a psychological attraction to P's. Pursuit and performance and priorities and, well, I promise you I didn't do that on purpose. 
But the second thing we see that comes when that happens when salvation comes is there's a new perspective. Sorry about that. <laughs> a new perspective. Uh, Zacchaeus had a big transformation. He said, if, if, I'm going to give half of what I owe to the poor. And those who I, so, so, and, and those who I've defrauded, I'm going to fix. I'm going to fix it. So a big transformation in how he sees him in relation to himself in relation to people. A big transformation with that, a new perspective. I was a, he, he's saying, whereas before I was an instrument of injustice, now I'm going to be an instrument of justice. And justice was a big thing in the Jewish uh, economy of things, because God told the Jews, as my representative on earth, you need to show justice. He told them back in Deuteronomy, he said, watch out for the widow and the orphan and the alien, the person who's a foreigner, because they're the helpless ones. They're the vulnerable ones. So you need to stand in the gap for these people because you're my representative. I'm a God of justice. So we see this theme in the law. We also see it in the prophets, especially in the book of Amos. We said, let justice roll down. Let justice roll down. And, and, and his, God's problem with Israel was that they were not showing justice. And about 30 years after Amos, they fell to the Assyrians because they failed to heed God's warning. So Jesus summed it up this way when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. On these two things rest all the law and the commandments. So this is kind of like the law of love. So Zacchaeus was unloving, and now he's a loving person. And our challenge is, as believers, as representatives of God, how we can love well. How we can show love, as Jesus said we should love. There's international justice mission said there's over 40 million slaves still in the world. People who are in forced uh, labor are people who are being sex trafficked. M much of that's going right up right here in Houston. Are the refugees who are coming from all over the world here. We have an opportunity to show love. Are other people who just God has sent into your sphere of influence, who can't help themselves, but we have an opportunity to help them. We have the opportunity and the expectation from God to love well. And I would encourage us to do that. The next thing we see is in verse 9, the third thing when salvation comes. He says, today the salvation has come to your house because he too is a son of Abraham. Now you say, well, I thought he was already a son of Abraham. He's a Jew, isn't he? So isn't he a son of Abraham? But Jesus is not talking about a biological son. He's talking about a spiritual son. Like God told, God told um, Abraham, so through you, all the family groups, the people groups of the earth will be blessed through Christ. The seed. Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 3. He said, since we all believe in Jesus, the promise of Jesus, those who will believe in Jesus, we are sons of Abraham. So all of you in here who are sons of Jesus, who are believers in Jesus, are children of the promise. I'm a children of the, you my people, right? I'm your peeps, right? So a new identity. Identities are important because we glob on to all kinds of identities. Just identity speaks says, I am a fill in the blank. 
I am a whatever, fill in the blank. And that could be your nationality, it could be your uh, ethnicity, it could be race, it could be your socioeconomic status, it could be your political affiliation or your political ideology, any of these things that, we help, that help identify us. But we have an overarching identity that God has given us. Paul talks about that in, in Galatians chapter 3. He says that we are, there's no more Jew, no more Greek, none of these other different humanly assigned identities, but there's an overarching identity called identity in Christ. That's the identity that God has assigned. God has designed. All the other identities are man, human identities. What happens is we try to glob onto those human identities and bring them into the church and our relationships with each other and into the business of the kingdom, they're ultimately divisive. They divide. But if we all rally around our common identity, our in Christ identity, then as Paul says, there's unity. There's oneness. And I'm not saying forget about all those other identities, because there's some real baggage associated with some of them. But we can, through our identity in Christ, overcome those, a new identity. So I'd encourage us tonight to think primarily when we look across the aisle and see our brother and sister, no matter what they look like, that we're to say, that's my people. That's, they're a son of the promise, a daughter of the promise, just like I am. And then we'll, we'll go through life, through our Christian lives, more unified, more effective for the kingdom. So that's what happens when salvation comes. There's a new pursuit, a new perspective, a new identity. And uh, so how does salvation come? It comes because Jesus brings salvation. It says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus does the seeking. There's a young man, a teenager. Uh, I was seeking a lot of things, but I wasn't seeking Jesus. I was seeking what I thought was good for me, what pleased me, what helped me, but it didn't include Jesus. Uh, well, one day I was standing in line to uh, register for my classes in my freshman year, long line. He said, what are you doing standing in line? I thought you went online to register, but that was in line those days. <laughs> and I'm glad there was a line because these two guys were going up and down the line talking to people in the line about what I didn't know. But then they picked me out of the crowd. And they came and started talking to me. And of course, I'm, I can't, what can I do? I'm going to go back to the end of the line. And no, I couldn't get out of the line. So I'm just captive. I'm trapped, <laughs> right? So what a strategy. What a strategy. But God had sent his two rep transformative representatives into my Jericho and explained Jesus in a way to me that I had never heard or understood. And they were persistent over some number of days. Then I came to faith. And then I had a new pursuit, the things of God and God himself. I had a new perspective about myself and about people. And then I had a new identity. I had Christian brothers and sisters. These guys were like navigators, and I didn't know what a navigator was. I mean, I'm in the middle of, you know, the land. There's no ocean around. I was with the navigators. <laughs> But they loved me, accepted me, and I had a new family, a new identity, a new people. If you know Jesus and salvation has come to you, then maybe you're the one God wants to send 
to be that transformational person. And if you don't know Jesus, I encourage you to listen intently what Jesus has to say. And I'm willing to talk to you about that. Or maybe you can talk to the person who may have brought you and explain to you this thing about salvation and what it really means. So do that. Come see me. Come see the person next to you. Do that, would you? Let's pray. God, we do thank you that you came and that when we weren't seeking you, you were seeking us. And you found us and you gave us salvation, Lord. And and I thank you for that. I pray for those who may not know you tonight, God. They really seek you out and listen to what you have to say about yourself and about truth and about salvation. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.